This account of Paul's first journey to Rome is one of the most exciting adventure stories that be found anywhere in the Bible. Uh, what normally would have taken three weeks and about a thousand miles to sail from Caesarea in Palestine or Israel to uh, the city of Rome in Italy ends up taking many, many months for reasons that we'll get into as we study through these packages or these passages. But in the process, the ship, as we read, and all of its cargo are lost. Only the passengers of crew and the crew are safe, which was in itself a quite remarkable miracle because generally speaking, that just never happened. Usually almost or most of a crew and passengers were lost in situations like this. Now, historians have long noted that Luke's detailed account comports perfectly with what we know about sailing in the Mediterranean, even into modern times. In other words, as we look at the exact route, the time of year, the weather conditions, the consequences of their choices to sail, everything is exactly as it should be. There's no question about that. It becomes very clear that Luke was on that ship and he was an eyewitness as he recorded each of the events taking place. But the only unusual part is that anyone at all survived. Ordinarily, as I said, under such circumstances, everyone would have been lost at sea. The ship that Paul was on, especially the second ship, the first ship is one of these one of cargo ships that kind of move up along the coast and never really f get very far from it for that very reason that venturing out into open ocean was often dangerous and they were unprepared to handle it. That's where the weather has no breaks. There's nothing to stop it, the wind from blowing. But uh, this massive grain ship that he was on, which were commonly used during this area, in fact, the Romans had thousands of these grain ships. They would sail from Egypt to Rome or from Africa to Rome, and their main cargo was wheat or grain, then, along with some other things and passengers. And the reason was that Rome's politicians had developed the habit of buying support from the local, the residents, by giving them bribes of various kinds. In particular, one-third of the people who lived in Rome, a city of one million in population, we estimate literally 320,000 people, 320,000 people received free grain on a daily basis. In other words, it's simply they were given free food. And thus began the era which later became called the, the era of bread and circuses. In other words, free food and free entertainment as most of the Roman population became rather sedentary, sitting around just eating, partying, and uh, letting their slaves do all of the work for them. And of course, the high, high entertainment was to go to the arena to see various gladiatorial and animal fights and execution of prisoners where in many places the the uh, Christians themselves were executed, either mauled by wild animals or burned at stakes. So this became part of the lifestyle and it became part of the economy. That grain was to Rome what fossil fuel is to us today. Without it, there's no economy and there's therefore no nation and they all collapse. That what follows poverty, malnutrition, disease, death, and even civil strife, even civil war would break out because of a lack of food. So to prevent that from ever happening, Rome launched over 2,000 of these massive cargo carriers. We call them mega transport ships. Uh, they could carry someplace between 500 and 700 tons of cargo and 300 passengers. 
They were big boats. They carried quite a bit. The frequency of these shipments didn't mean that it had become safe. You know, one of the things I know that when I get on an airplane, that each time you do, it's safer to do so every time you do it. Um, you know, we've learned so much from so many tragedies in the past that there have been many things put in place to ensure that the chances of it happening again are not real high. Although I admit I was sitting next to a passenger one time and he said, you know, I've, I've made over 7 million air miles. And I said, really? That's quite a bit. And he said, yeah, every 9 million one of these planes crash. He said, you know, I'm probably the most dangerous man you could have sat next to. <laughs> I said, well, that would concern me, but I don't believe in statistics. I believe in God. <laughs> and he didn't have anything else to say. But... But how serious this became really is obvious that even today with people who are familiar with sailing on the Mediterranean, you know that after the fast, which is talking about the only fast that Israel really had officially, uh, God had officially given to them, which was on the Day of Atonement, which happened someplace in between the middle of September and the middle of October, that they never would sail during that season. October and November are the most dangerous times to be on the Mediterranean. Even today, cruise ships will not take passengers out on the Mediterranean from October through November because it's just too rough and can be too dangerous. And so basically, this was something that was understood that as it said here, sailing was dangerous because of hurricane force winds. In other words, we're talking about winds that get in excess of 75 to 100 miles an hour. And again, we think of hurricanes as being something that has only occurs in Florida and Georgia and places like that, but they ha happen all over the world. Uh, they just have different names. If they're in the Pacific, they're called a cyclone. If they're called in the, in the Atlantic, we call them a hurricane. And uh, I forget what they call them back there, uh, big winds. But um, the whole idea is that uh, this is not something that you know they weren't familiar with. These men who were who owned this guy who owned the ship, the captain of the ship, and they call him the pilot, they understood these dynamics better than most, I assume. And yet, how serious the situation had become quickly is evidenced by the way that Luke chronicles it when he starts saying, the winds were against us. Uh, they did not allow us to hold our course. Uh, we moved along the coast with difficulty. The ship was caught by the storm, and so we gave way and were driven along. In other words, the whole idea is the winds are so strong, all they can do is let it push them wherever it was going to push them. And they make these attempts to, it says when they fought, sailed to the lee, L-E-E, -E, of a certain island, what they were attempting to do is hide behind the mountains of these various islands so that there would be a break in the wind and they could hopefully get to some port. You know, it's like the old saying, in a storm, any port is welcome. And so they're looking for some place to park so they won't be sunk justifiably, it says, because it, it goes on saying, fearing they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. Now, the sea anchor is actually, it was actually a, 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 a kind of a netting type of thing that they would throw off the back of the ship, which basically operates as a drag to slow the process so they can maintain some level of control of the ship. 
But basically, the Straits of Sirtis are this massive sandbar that reaches out from the coast of Africa into the Mediterranean Ocean. I've been told that there are places out far into the Mediterranean, hundreds of miles into the Mediterranean, that if you were to jump off the boat, you could stand because you'd be on top of a sandbar. Hard to imagine in this massive body of water. But one historian recounts the following. He says, grain ships were large ships with deep draft, they easily got grounded on a sandbar in the middle of nowhere and miles from shore. They had grain, but not a drop of water. It meant a slow, painful death of dehydration. So it's like that old mariner tale, you know, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Other than the fact that you might get some rain and you can capture it, and think about it, you've got a ship with 276 people on it. Any water you had would be gone very, very quickly. So the real fear wasn't dying of hunger. They had all the grain in the world. But the fear was that they would sit there and slowly dehydrate and die from lack of moisture, lack of water. A very, very painful way to die. Well, Luke's purpose in sharing this account in such detail wasn't simply to kind of spice up the story or make it seem more exciting to us. Rather, his focus is upon Paul's role in the episode. And it's kind of fascinating when you begin to peel away all the names that you can't pronounce and the locations you're not familiar with. You begin to look at the interaction between the characters in the story, and it's kind of really fascinating. You know, undoubtedly, Julius, the centurion, who was part of the Augustan band or the imperial army, these were a special elite services who were in charge of maintaining police control over the nation. These guys' job was to take people, prisoners from place to place, and even at times to execute them. And apparently, he saw Paul as a high-value customer. <laughs> he had, he had uh, been before the emperor. He was obviously known to be educated. There was an opportunity for Paul to converse with him uh, during these times of imprisonment. So, you know, he saw that Paul was somebody that he needed to treat with special regard. I mean, in fact, he was so trustful of Paul's integrity that when they make land in Sidon early on in the trip, he allows Paul to have shore leave, if you will, and go and visit with his friends because in those days... If you were a prisoner, you had to pay for your own food and care. I mean, they, they would put you in chains and they would throw you in a hold if they needed to. But if you wanted to eat anything besides water and bread, that had to be provided by other people that cared about you. And along with any other niceties that might make your imprisonment any more comfortable. So when Paul realized that the captain and the owner were seriously arguing to disregard this well-established shipping rule that you don't s sail in the months of September, October, and November, when he began to learn and hear of this conversation, and when he began to understand that this was basically a rather faulty cost-risk analysis that was probably motivated more by greed than common sense, Paul speaks up. He says, men, our voyage is going to be disastrous and to bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives. And yet, after some discussion between them about whether to listen to Paul or listen to the captain and the owner of the ship, Luke adds, apparently there must have been some kind of a discussion. He says, instead of listening to what Paul said, the, the centurion followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Keep in mind, the centurion would have had final veto power over any decision. 
But he looked at Paul, this prisoner, and then he looked at the owner of the ship, the captain, these experienced seamen. He says, well, I'm going to go with the experts. I'm going to trust in the expertise of these men. Not really recognizing that their judgment was a little bit faulty because they were driven more by greed. You see, if they could get this grain ship to Rome during this season, the prices would have been significantly higher and they would have made a fortune. So they're saying, we're willing to take the chance because we know that the reward at the end is worth it. How many times have you heard people give you that kind of advice on the internet or on TV? You can't really make it rich unless you're willing to take some chances. So buy my gold and I'll send you a paper certificate telling you it's good. How can you lose? I love the one that says, silver has never been worth nothing. <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> uh, anyway, so we hear this kind of advice from people all the time. Take a risk, take a chance, because, I mean, what can you lose? And sometimes, like in this case, you can lose everything. In fact, I find it even interesting, one other phrase that's here that isn't explained, but does cause me to ponder. It says, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix. Now, the harbor of Phoenix was only 70 miles away, but keep in mind, you're traveling in one of those ships about five miles per hour, so it's about a 14-hour trip just along the lower side of the, of the island of Crete. So you have to just go 70 miles. That's all it takes. Where, what could go wrong <laughs> is a famous saying. Well, what was being overlooked was that Paul's advice was not just the advice of another passenger. You know, if I'm sitting on a plane and I'm, there's things going on, I'm probably not going to speak up and, and make suggestions on how the pilots should address the problem. You know, I mean, that's because what do I know? I, I, I become an expert in sitting in my seat on an airplane. You know, I, I don't have to listen to the warnings of how to escape in case everything goes crazy. So, you know, I, I have some level of expertise. I have some level of experience, quite a bit of experience, actually. But when it comes to going into the cockpit and taking the controls, well, all they can say is, if you hear somebody like me coming over the microphone, you should start praying really, really hard. You know, because uh, I, I had this conversation with my father-in-law talking about during World War II, and he's in one of these planes where, uh, one of these cargo planes, it's filled with cargo, he's the only passenger and the two pilots, and he says, we're flying along, and the pilots leave the cockpit, go in the back of the plane, and get a little burner, and they start making coffee as we're flying <laughs> over the Pacific Ocean. And he says, uh, you know, I'm a little nervous already. And then all of a sudden, one of the engines started cutting out, you know, and they jump up and, you know, running back up to the front of the plane to get the engine restarted. And he says, you know, that was the first time in my life where I really prayed. <laughs> he said, I made all sorts of promises to God that I didn't keep. But he says, you know, it was a desperate moment. Well, I often think about these guys. Here we are. We're just going to go on a leisurely cruise, you know, like Gilligan's Island. We're going to go on this leisurely cruise. We're going to sail here. We'll get to that harbor. We'll be safe and we won't have to worry, but they never make it. You see, Paul's advice, as I said, was not just the advice of uh, a guy who knew a little bit about it. In fact, he was an experienced sea traveler and had several harrowing experiences previously. In fact, he tells us that he was shipwrecked three times. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, we read, I have been in danger at sea. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and I have been naked. In other words, Paul says, I have these harrowing experiences. My own father, you know, uh, was in the Army Air Corps and before and after World War II. And, and uh, he, he crashed three times uh, at various p- points in his career. And I remember one time we were talking about going someplace. And he says, uh, I- I'm not getting back on a plane. I said, Dad, you're in the Army Air Corps and the Air Force for 30 years. You won't get on a plane. He says, yeah, I feel like I've used up all my chances. <laughs> and I thought... I get that. Well, Paul's sitting here saying, I mean, if I had been him, I would never have gotten on another ship. You think about being shipwrecked three times. One time you're floating out there on flotsam for three days before somehow you're miraculously rescued. You know, that's when you begin to realize there's a whole lot of Paul's story that he never got around talking about. Tells me he wasn't a drama queen like me. I'm going to tell you everything. But the whole point is that He was a guy who understood the dynamics he was talking about. He had probably been on other ships who tried to make that same run themselves and end up suffering from the consequences. And this is where we begin to understand something about Paul's advice here. Paul's advice is not based at this point on divine revelation. It isn't like God has said anything to me, to him. In fact, I've had people who criticize the text by saying, well, see, Paul said that they were all going to die, and then later on he says they weren't going to die. Well, what's the difference between that? The first time Paul was speaking from the wisdom that comes from experience. There's a certain amount of wisdom that comes from living life. Uh, you may, we live in an era where kind of there's this impression that younger people are smarter than people in my generation because they can type on their iPhones with two hands. You know, I, I, I'm more careful. Bat, 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 bat. Anyway. I even speak into my mind, I can't, mind and I can't even get to do it right. But um, sometimes some very embarrassing messages have gone out. <laughs> but the whole point is that one thing you get with longevity is experience. It's like the, business, the young man was asking the business executive who was very successful. He says, what was the secret of your success? And his answer was uh, making good decisions. And he says, well, how do you do that? By making a lot of bad decisions. <laughs> and you do find that with people who have come to a point of success. They look back and they learn from the mistakes that they made in the past. They don't get basically uh, buried by their mistakes. They learn to take those mistakes and say, why did this go wrong? And I found in my life as a Christian, more often than not, is if I'd spent more time in prayer, if I spent more time waiting upon the Lord, if I spent more time seeking out godly counsel rather than people who want to, are pursuing success above godliness, if I had learned to be holy more often than I sought to be happy, it would have come out much better. And so Paul had come from that perspective. He said, you know, I, I have experienced a few things. I've seen some things. I've, I've lived life. I know how this works. And I'm just telling you that this is probably going to be the end of all of us. This is how this is going to work out. Well, initially, the captain's decision seemed like the right one. And isn't that the way it is? Wrong decisions initially always seem to be the right one. We make the decision and then it seems like everything is working out wonderfully until it doesn't work out wonderfully. It says, when a gentle south wind, oh, I love that, gentle south wind. I mean, I get pictures in my mind. Palm trees swaying. 
When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and they sailed. They committed themselves. Yet as often as the case, things change quickly, don't they, in life? I mean, you, one day it's one way, the next day it's completely different. Before very long, it says, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. So it's coming off the mountains of Crete down towards the ocean and sweeps and begins to blow with hurricane force. You know, hurricanes start, we usually say a hurricane, a, a type one is it's about uh, 75 to 100 miles, and then it just goes up till 250 miles, which little survives when it's blowing that hard. It wouldn't be long before the centurion would regret, regret having taken the seaman's advice. Instead, what we find that, uh, as, as Luke writes about it, he says, we took such a violent battering from the storm that they began throwing the cargo overboard. In other words, they're trying to lighten the weight of the ship. That way they can get the ship to, to float higher upon the water and not be driven so deep. In other words, what they're saying is the waves were beginning to crash in over the walls of the boat. So let's lighten the ship and bring it up so that we don't take on too much water. And when that didn't work, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. All of that equipment that they would need to maintain and to direct and to guide the ship, they got rid of everything and anything. And whether neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, it says, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. None of us, I think, or very few of us, can even begin to imagine how horrific that moment must have been. When you go through all of those uh, days and days of hunger and fear and threat and storm and darkness and all the rest, you can imagine lightning flashing over your head. And as you're in the midst of this, you realize we have no control of the ship. We're just being driven to where we're gonna, wherever we're going to land or sink. At that moment, that depression sets in and you just give up. It's resignation. We're, we're dead. We're lost. There's no salvation Let's, we're just going to sit here and wait until it happens. What I find interesting is from this point forward, we no longer hear any mention of the captain and the owner. The experts now became irrelevant because their ex expertise had obviously been tainted by their own prejudice and bias and greed. I suspect the centurion no longer put a lot of trust in their judgment. Instead, he listens only to Paul, and he listens closely, who at their lowest point receives a different kind of wisdom. There's wisdom that comes from life experience. There's wisdom that comes from, us, from the Word of God. And when you combine the Word of God with life experience, it really becomes really valuable wisdom. I mean, it becomes insight that sees beyond just the obvious of the moment. The Bible often tells us in its instructions where things are going to end up. Go this way, this will be the consequence. Go that way, this will be the consequence. The, the ride is the road that leads to death and destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. And on and on it goes in, in repeated detail, almost to a level of mundacity, 
that we realize that God is saying there's always this choice between the right and the wrong, the good and the evil, the true and the false, and you need to focus on doing that which is good and true and right and, and stay away from the things that are false and untrue and that are a lie. You need to do that. Things which are good need to be pursued. That which is evil needs to be ignored because if you don't, you will end up finding yourself in the midst of storms that you have no capacity to survive. Those of you who feel like you're so much in control of the direction of your life will suddenly find that I'm absolutely not in control of anything and I'm facing things in my life that I know I don't have the ability to, to overcome and to manage. And it's at that point that Paul receives not just wisdom. The wisdom was, this isn't a good choice. This isn't a good decision. They ignored that. Now he has divine revelation. Divine revelation tells us what the future holds, and it tells us how we should respond. And this is a part of that whole prophetic dynamic of Scripture and also the careful study and interpretation of what Scripture says that we might understand in the changing circumstances of our world basically what the future is going to look like and how we should respond as that future progresses. Oftentimes in a direction that we don't like, but nonetheless it's one that God wants us to not only survive through but thrive in ways that we may not expect. Again, he says to him, men, you should have taken my advice. Now, I, I first read that and I thought to myself, well, that's kind of a nitpicky, kind of peevish kind of way of coming across. Why didn't you guys, didn't I warn you? I told you a thousand times. You know, I, I just get this church lady view. I mean, you know, we get it, I, we get it. We all had parents. Not that we were ever once ourselves, but nonetheless, you should have taken my advice. Why is he saying that? Because he's saying you need to begin by recognizing that the, the counsel, the expertise that you trusted in was unreliable. You have to admit that. You can't continue to say, well, I'm sure it'll work out. We just need to hang on a little bit longer. No, he's saying, no, you have to understand it has come to this point. You know, I mean, it's, it, it, and it's amazing, it's amazing things, I think, even within our own country and the dynamics that are going on, you wonder how much pain people are going to have to experience before they finally realize that we're going in the wrong direction. I mean, it's quite obvious, and yet, you know, it's, uh, I thought it was interesting, poll I heard that 63%, 63% of Americans think that we, the government should start another stimulus program to send us checks to help us through this difficult time. It's, it reminds me of, uh, I remember talking with one of my kids one time, they wanted to buy something, I said, we can't afford it. And they said, well, you still got checks. You know, they, they don't understand that that check is only a piece of paper and if there's no money to back it up, you're gonna be in trouble. And that's kind of how, it's called Keynesian economics. Uh, John F. Kennedy's key financial advisor, John Kenzie's, basically said that you need to spend to stimulate the economy to create growth. And, and politicians have loved that advice and continue to do so. 
Then you have the, uh, the Friedman view, <laughs> going back to Reagan and people like that, who said basically, you want to stimulate the economy, what you do is you cut taxes, you reduce government spending, and you give more freedom and liberty for business to do business so they can make money, which is what they're all about. Well, we live in a Keynesian economic. The current administration buys into that hook, line, and sinker. And they'll just basically, we'll keep doing the same thing over and over again because we're sure at some point it'll get better. And, uh, and we won't. We won't. But that's basically saying, until you recognize that the path you're on is the wrong path, the, the, the decision grid that you're using to figure out what you're going to do and not do, until you come to grips with that, you're going to continue to repeat the whole scenario. He says... Because if you had done that, you would have spared yourself this damage and the loss of this cargo. You see, every, every man on that crew, not just the captain, the owner, would have made a bonus based upon the price of the grain. That's all gone. Now they're going to make nothing. If they get out with their lives, they survive, but basically they survive penniless. But now, he says, I urge you to keep your courage. <laughs> I, I can just picture this moment. You've got this group of guys who are sitting in the hull of the ship waiting for their death. They're sure they're going to sink at any moment. And Paul gets up and says all this. And he says, now I want you to show some courage. And every mind would have said, for what reason? <laughs> what are we going to get from being courageous? We have no control. You see, when we tell somebody to be courageous, we're implying that they have some control. They can respond in a way that's going to make a difference. These guys are looking and saying, what difference does it make if we're courageous or we're not? We're dead men. The party's over. He says, I urge you because not one of you will be lost only the ship will be destroyed. And I guarantee you at that minute, moment, every ear in there was listening very closely to what he had to say next. Last night, he said, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep your courage for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now, suddenly he interjects in that moment a, a possibility of hope. And I, you have to understand, when you have 267 people in your audience listening to everything, well, 266, not counting yourself, and you say, you know, here's what you got to do. you got to be courageous. You have to trust because God told me we're going to survive. You know, every one of those men at that moment had a choice. And we'll see later on as we continue on in this story that some of them heard that but did not believe that. They were still trying to figure out how they could solve their own problem. And I can't tell you how many people I've worked with over the years, and I'm sure I'm included in that category myself, where you're basically trying to figure out how to solve a problem. You run out of all solutions. You have no more resources. There's no way you can fix it. And you're sitting there, and you're praying. But at the same time, in the back of your mind, you're still thinking up scenarios of solutions. Well, I could do this, and I could do that. And, I... and this idea of just totally surrendering, not to my circumstance, but surrendering to God. Two very different things. People who surrender their circumstance become very sullen. 
In fact, one of the indications of somebody who has decided, firmly decided that they're going to take their own life is they usually are much happier. People saying, wow, he looks so much better today. He seems to be so calm because they made a decision. They came to a conclusion and the conclusion was the best solution for me is to end my life and leaving everybody else to clean up the mess, literally and figuratively. There's a peace that's there. When you've given up on life, there's a certain calm that comes in your life because you finally made a decision that means that this will come to an end. But there's a different kind of peace that comes that says somehow God has given me assurance that all of this stuff is going to work for good. That God simply said to Paul, I'm going to take this group of men and women into circumstances that are going to have them start praying And they'll probably start praying to their gods because there's probably many gods as there were people on that boat. And he says, yet they're going to hear from you and I'm telling you, there's one God in heaven, we need to seek him and they're not only going to see the hand of God, they're going to experience it personally in such a way that they finally will come to a place of absolute surrender. Well, as I said, we'll find out later on that not all of them did, but I'm certain many of them did. Many of them came to faith. And here's the thing that's really interesting to me. Have you noticed that regardless of whatever circumstance Paul found himself in, that God was seeking to use him in that circumstance for the furtherance of the gospel? Because simply he walked in that purposefulness. He walked in that purpose. If there's anything that weakens the church of Jesus Christ in this world, is that not every Christian has that kind of purpose. We have all sorts of mixed purposes. I I want this, I want that, I'd like to desire this. The cares, the affairs, the deceitfulness of issues, the pleasures of other things, or just simply distractions, Jesus said. We're just distracted by other stuff, and so we spend our energy going after those things, and it doesn't really occur to us that God's ultimate purpose, he says, the only one thing that you'll do in your lifetime that really adds up to anything and makes any real difference is whatsoever you've done for me. That has eternal value. Everything else is just timekeeping. Everything else is just measuring of time because you won't take it with you. It won't last. It won't survive. But what does last, as the old uh, poem used to say, one life will soon be passed, but only that which is done for Christ will last. When Paul said to the Philippians, I would that you would be of one heart, one mind, one purpose. Important. One heart means that emotionally you're not divided. There's, there's, there's the ability to love everybody. We don't actively love everybody all the time, but we can, in our hearts, have that set up in our lives where we love people. We know that they may sin against us, but we pre-forgiven them. I mean, we already have put in the bank that, that heart of forgiveness that I know that people will let me down and disappoint me, but I'm going to love them anyway, and therefore you're presupposed, you're cocked and loaded that when you pull the trigger, out will come love and forgiveness. That's a dispositional life, he said, he wants you to live with. But secondly, when you have this of one mind, that basically you're focused intellectually, thinking, processing the same thing. In other words, the word of God, the will of God, the way of God. That becomes, Lord, I want to live within your will, your word, and your way. And then finally, he says, you become of one purpose. 
That when you have the first two, you find yourself suddenly gathering with other people who are like-minded and you're committed together on the agenda, not on your agenda. You're committed to what Paul would go on later on in Philippians to say was the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. That we live on that way. That whatsoever we do, as he would say twice to the Colossians, we do it all to the glory of God. Whatsoever we do, we, we see it as being part of the way that we express God in our life. I get it. None of us do that, does that perfectly. But we can do it if we do it intentionally. When it's our prayer, God, help me to be that. Help me to live that way. Help me to follow you and serve you in that way so that you might be magnified, you might be glorified, you might be honored in my life. But back to my original point. From this point forward, Paul is the only expert anyone is listening to because he has godly wisdom based upon the Word of God, based upon his experience with walking with God, and he has divine wisdom or divine revelation. The Holy Spirit in him gives him the ability to see what's coming next, to answer the big questions that are always on our mind, what's going on and what am I supposed to do about it? You see, my point is that through most of human history, men have relied upon experts of one kind or another to, to guide and direct them in their affairs. And uh, we may high hold some, you know, may disregard the importance of certain, say, for example, tribal shamans who shake dead chicken feet with dipped in blood over somebody and tell them what they should do or should not do. We'd say, well, that's not the kind of expertise I'm in unless it's, you know, been through Chick-fil-A first. Um, Or more likely in our culture when somebody says, well, I am a scientist, then suddenly they automatically have kind of an expertise that we all go, oh, wow, I should really pay attention to him because he knows how to do math. <laughs> yet today, yet there was a study not long ago in the Smithsonian, and they, <laughs> they wrote the following, experts are almost always wrong. No one, not even the experts, really knows what's about to happen. You see, in that there's one thing is saying I'm an expert in heart surgery because I've done 500 heart surgeries. I respect that. <laughs> but when somebody says I'm an expert, I've done over 500 heart surgeries, now let me sit down and help you do your financial planning. You know, suddenly, <laughs> first of all, talking about an area where it's hard to predict what's going to happen next... But simply, it's not an area where you have any expertise or any life experience. I remember when I first started pastoring this church almost 40 years ago, one of the first appointments I had was a young man who had started a business, and he came in, I, you know, counseling appointment, don't know what to say, and I said, well, well, how can I help you? And he says, well, uh, I've been thinking about buying this property to expand my business, and uh, I'm just wondering, what do you think I should do? And I looked at him and said, wait a minute. I know nothing about your business. <laughs> I hardly know anything about this community. I don't have any idea if that's a good idea or a bad idea. And he said, well, my other pastor, I just asked him and he'd tell me. He said, God wants you to do X, Y, Z. I said, you should probably go back to him. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's just no way that I'm going to you know, say something like that. I mean, it would just be 
talking, it'd be basically talking out of parts of my anatomy that weren't made for speech. So I'm just not going to do that. You know, my ears. Um, but I said, you, you probably should find that other pastor. And you know what? He did. <laughs> Never saw him again. Uh, he just wanted his personal profit. But, you know, even recent history should confirm that to us. I mean, COVID, in spite of the Imperial College's projections, did not kill two million Americans. Um, lockdowns, masks, vaccines, they did not stop the spread. Even the, the, the vice president of lab research for Pfizer said, well, we never tested to see if people with the vaccine would be able, would, would uh, not spread. And of course, now we know that it's, it's uh, becoming a, a, a pandemic or of the vaccinated, not the unvaccinated. So, you know, and we realize that many times, in many ways, though there was more damage caused from those decisions than were helped, and yet we were told over again, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. And what it came down to was not trusting the science as much as it was trusting in the people who controlled the microphone. I think there's no more glaring example that makes the, than that in the world, as I said, of financial predictions. I mean, <laughs> I think about how many economic pundits foresaw the dot-com crash in, in 2000 or the housing crash in 2008 or saw the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scam fall apart or the most lately Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, cryptocurrency scam. In fact, instead of we having pontificators or people out there who said, you know, you need to watch out for these things, this is really unstable. In fact, some of the loudest voices, Jim Cramer, CNN, on Mad Money, said of every single one of them, the dot-com is not going to crash. Keep your money in, the, in those stocks. The housing crash, the banking, don't take your money out of Lehman because they are going, they're secure, they're stable. The next day they collapsed. He said that Bernie Madoff is one of the geniuses of financial investment, encouraged people to invest. And with Sam Bankman, he said that Sam Bankman is the next J.P. Morgan. How does that guy keep his job? He's been wrong every time. You see, and sadly, I could give unending number of examples from medicine, science, technology, politics, media, psychology, even religious leaders. I can't tell you how many pastors in my lifetime have predicted the second coming of Christ and exactly when it's going to happen. They give dates. And those dates come and those dates go. And I keep on saying, well, doesn't Jesus say no man knows the hour of the day? So if you know the hour and the day. Doesn't that kind of guarantee that that's not the hour and the day? Because Jesus said no man would know the hour and the day. I am following the logic here. But it doesn't keep fellows from doing it. I don't know. But this week I came across one of the most egregious examples <laughs> I've ever come of, of people making uh, predictions about the future basically created out of nothing more than fertile imaginations. And it would come from all places, from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And says, just simply, it doesn't identify them by name, it says that there was their team. Now it could have been a team of trained monkeys, which would have made more sense. But here's what they predicted. Let me read this to you. 
They used a previous theory. Now, keep in mind, what is a theory? A theory is essentially a supposition, a, a creative idea that we come up to explain how something or why something happens. A theory is not a fact. We talk about the theory of evolution. doesn't make evolution a fact. If it was fa evolution a fact, we'd say evolution. No, it, it's a theory of evolution because it's basically, supposedly, an intellectual, informed, scientifically-based explanation for something that we can't explain, which is the origin of life. So whenever you're talking with, to somebody who's a avowed evolution and saying, can, I just can you answer me just one simple question? And then you say, yeah, where did it start? How, how did it all come into being? And they will ham and haw and ham and haw and ham and haw because they don't know. There's only one explanation that's given. I mean, you can talk about, well, there was this protozoa in, in the middle of the ocean and lightning struck it and electrical current caused these chemical changes. And, and then all of a sudden, over billions and billions and billions of years, you showed up. You know? It's like the cowboy poet I read one time. I love this guy. He talked about how he's talking about his old friend Slim and how Slim died and they buried him in the ground and then he moldered away and, and uh, you know, and basically a, a flower grew up, grew up over his grave and a horse came by one day and he ate the flower and then he took a dump on top of the grave and he says, as I was standing there looking at your remains, I thought to myself, you ain't changed much, Slim. But <laughs> I mean, it's just like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, anyway, I'll let these, I'll let the trained monkeys go on and explain here. They call it the great filter, and, and no coffee involved here. The great filter to explain that many other civilizations have existed during the history of the universe, but they were all wiped out before they got a chance to make contact. So why can't we connect with outer space extraterrestrial beings. Why can't we have this communication? Because they're all, they wiped themselves out before they had a chance to pick up the phone. Now right away he's going, wait a minute. You can't prove they existed, but their non-existence has become their proof that they existed. And that's why we don't know them because, I'm, I'm, help me with this. Well, they go on and say, we postulate. Ah, postulate. Postulate means an assumption. We make this assumption. That the existential disaster, existential means the end of life, may lay in wait. It may lay in wait for us. We don't know for sure. We're kind of guessing that the world may come to destruction because of our superior intellects. may lay in wait as our society advances exponentially towards space exploration. It has the potential. I mean, <laughs> I got a potential to play in the NBA. Very, very, very small potential. <laughs> but I mean, these terms, it's, it's so clever how they couch everything in these terms that people don't really take time to really examine. It has the potential to eradicate life as we know it. Now, the point of their suppositions, assumptions, imagination, and guesswork comes down to this. They said, this indicates a necessary period of introspection. 
My question would be, what necessitates this? Because you just told me you don't know anything, and this is just supposition. But you said, nevertheless, I'm required to take an action of introspection. And I'm sure it's guided because followed by appropriate refinements. Appropriate refinements mean I should lose a few pounds? <laughs> to, re, to properly approach our predicament. So we've gone from a possibility into now it's a predicament followed by appropriate refinements. And then to address the challenges and the methods in which we may be able to mitigate the risk, which has not yet been defined, to mankind and nearly nine million other species on the earth. And you know where this is going? Climate change. So I've got a team of trained monkeys at NASA who are now writing a theoretical paper based upon their own imagination, telling us that we should radically alter our lifestyle. We need to start putting corks in the hind end of cows so they don't flatulate us into climate crisis. In other words, what they're saying is you need to let us take command and control of every aspect of your life so that we can save you from any real or imagined danger, like COVID or climate change or guns or meat or cow flatulence or whiteness or toxic masculinity or any other imaginative, vaguely defined existential threat that might be out there. The question I can't help but ask is, why are these experts so often wrong? And secondly, why do we keep on listening to them? And the answer to the first question is they are mostly wrong because they begin with a false premise. You know, people can be very bright, very logical, very reasonable, very intelligent, and yet if you start with a wrong premise, in other words, you, you already defined what you think is the truth, you're going to end up someplace else. So if you believe that climate change is an existential threat to the world, then you're going to make all of your decisions based upon that premise. You're going to read all the data to support that because that's the way we tend to be biased. Even most scientists, as we talk about things like even what happened with COVID, all of those things were based upon a bias. Things that had been scientifically disproved, like lockdowns and masks and things of that sort, now suddenly and still continue to be advertised by our state government to tell us how important it is to continue to wear our masks that don't work, that you know, most of us just go, okay, if you tell me to do that. But they've all started with a premise, and that premise is this, that man is basically good, that uh, whatever we do is based upon good intentions, not evil, to suggest that somebody has evil motives, selfish motives, unholy motives, I mean, to suggest that is just wrong because basically people are, are generally good. The secondly, that we are reasonable, and in fact, this reason is also often um, sabotaged by certain unreasonable dynamics within our own personalities and characters and life experiences. And that we have the ability to perceive things rightly most of the time. I mean, those are the operative assumptions. It's called humanism. They assume, basically, that we are good enough and we are smart enough to make objective, unbiased decisions about a future that we can neither accurately foresee or prepare for because, in fact, we are just the opposite. We are fallible, we are narrow-minded, and we are short-sighted. 
And that's why it comes up the question, why is it that we listen to these people and without, and I'm saying we just don't listen to people, but we don't listen critically. If they say it, then we go, okay. And the reason is because we ourselves sometimes have no answers to the circumstance we find ourselves in. But even more importantly, neither we nor they any longer have a real fear of God. And what they mean by the fear of God is that we don't feel like it matters if we ignore Scripture, if we don't read it, if we don't know it, we don't understand it. Instead, what we do is rely upon somebody who's an expert, like me. And we don't go away and study the Scriptures and say, as the Bereans did, they heard Paul and then they went home and studied the Scriptures to see if the things that he said were actually true. Could they find the same thing? You see, it's the study of God's Word that has given us wisdom in the sense that we can learn how things really work. I mean, there's a reason where, why the book of Proverbs in my Bible is just about illegible at this point because I read it every day. Because I know that the things that Solomon says in Proverbs are truisms about life. That he says, if you do this, this will be the consequence. And I found from my own limited experience, yes, that's exactly how it works. Though, as Paul says, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you walk in the Spirit, God will put His blessing on you. These things you find to be true, and so you begin to make choices. There were points early on in my Christian life where I thought, well, you know, I know it's probably wrong, but I don't know, I kind of like doing this. And then I found out why it was a bad idea. The Word of God gives us wisdom that really works in this world. That's why you need to know it. That's why you need to read it. That's why you need to study it. It's not just simply a religious duty that you get to check off your list and say, well, I can go and have fun now. But it's something that we look at and saying, these are the very ways of life. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And when I began to really believe that, I began to make those choices based upon those, those truths. There becomes things that I look at and go, no, <laughs> not going to touch that. There's no good that can come up. I can point you a scripture right here. It says you do that, and this is what happened. I, I think so commonly in, this, in the sexualized culture we live in, where Solomon says in the sixth, end of the sixth chapter of Proverbs, he says, can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? Well, most of us seem to understand that that's true. You will be burned. But what is he talking about? When a man cheats on his wife with another woman. Or a woman cheats with her, on her husband with another man. He says, do you really think that anything good's going to come out of that? Yeah, there may be this moment of scintillation, but long term you will grieve and regret the decision you made. Well, I've seen that lived out in people's lives so many times. But that's why we call it the truth. That's why it becomes to us a practical guide for life. When the one true God who created everything and sustains all things has outlined for us in his word the things that rule the universe. We want to talk about the laws of nature. You can't defy the laws of nature. And yet we have a whole class of people who are trying to anyway. But nonetheless, he says, what goes up will come down. Gravity will win in the end. And that's why every time I get in a plane, I just want to be assured that they've got enough fuel in that plane to defy gravity from point A to point B. Because the minute that they don't have that fuel, that force, that power to push them against the pull of gravity, we're going to come in for a landing, but not a good one. 
You see, first, wisdom makes decisions based upon those rules and recognizes that they are inviolate. It's not like nine out of ten people have this happen. He says, if you do this, this is what will happen every time and always. If you follow those rules, you win, you break them, you lose. I mean, that's where David in Psalm 1, and I think it's appropriate that the very first psalm of the Bible would start with this dynamic. It says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, but not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away, and therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. You see, wicked, as it's used in the Scriptures, doesn't mean somebody that necessarily is, you know, basically murdering and chopping up people like they did to these students in, in, uh, in uh, Moscow, the University of Idaho. That was, that's wickedness. I don't know about you, but my wife and I, we're praying, God, help us to find that monster who did that. You know? It's horrible. I mean, it's just unthinkable. That's wickedness. It is, but... It's wickedness in its worst expressions. It starts much easier. Wickedness starts the moment you decide that you're going to follow your path instead of God's path. Wickedness starts when you decide that when God says, thou shalt not, you say, well, that's his opinion. That's where wickedness starts. It's a disregard of God. It is also God's word that informs us and it assures us that our God is a God who not only writes the rules, but he holds the future. Not a, some group of Twitter wonks from some think tank or ivory tower who are isolated from the real world, and, you know, which is basically D.C. Because Paul put it this way in Colossians 1.15, he said of Christ, For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's why the Lord told Jeremiah the prophet, he says, if you can break my covenant with the day and with the night so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant begin to be broken. In other words, when these people say, well, the word's going to be coming to the end, he says, does the sun rise? Does it set? Does the moon rise? Does it set? Has it stopped doing that? No? Well, then you know for sure that's going to continue doing that until I say it will no longer do it. God controls the future. He controls time. He controls the universe. He controls you and me far more than we acknowledge See, it was divine revelation, not expert seamanship, that saved 276 souls from certain death. And it's that same divine revelation that can save us and guide us in what Paul referred to as the last times. Times that he said would be perilous times. He can guide us and lead us through that. We can be at peace knowing that God is not going to forsake us. He's not going to let us down. The only question you really have to ask is, who ultimately is the primary authority in your life? 
And I, again, I'm not saying that there aren't people with expertise. I'm not saying there are people who aren't, have sound judgment or mature judgment. But in the end, what ultimately is the authority in your life? Who makes that final decision? So often I have people ask me about serious, significant questions and decisions they have to make in their life, and they ask me what I think, and I can tell them, here's what I think, but I think what we ought to do is rather than think about what I think, we should pray real hard that God show us what he thinks. Because until I hear his voice, as Paul heard God's voice, I'm only guessing like everybody else. But I read the Bible and I know how the story ends. I'm not sure about a lot of the middle details how exactly they'll pay out, play out. But I think it's interesting that this whole tragedy revolved around a grain shift because as the Lord had said in Deuteronomy 18, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God is the ultimate determinant of your life and everything that transpires in it. And when something in your life happens, it's hard and difficult and painful and scary and unpredictable and uncontrollable and unforeseen and all those kind of things that happen to us all at one point or another. We need to understand that they are not unforeseen by God. They are not outside of God's planning. They're not things that just are happening as a matter of happenstance. But God, if you're a follower of Jesus, He causes everything to work together to some good conclusion. And not everything that happens is going to be good, as Joseph would warn his brother. He said, I know what you meant for me. It was evil. <laughs> you wanted to kill me and get rid of me. I, I get that. Don't believe me for a minute. I've forgotten. But the bottom line is, I've also forgiven you. And you're not, I'm no longer using what you did to be the basis by which I evaluate my relationship with you. I use God's will. We don't live by the things that happen to us. We live by the promises of God that God says, I'm on the throne. I'm the giver of life and I'm the one who takes life. And everything else is just bread 